You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians." 
This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. Help us to know it. Help us to see you. That is a light into our paths. So help us to see even the areas in which our paths are dark that we might not even know that we need your light for. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Glad to see you all here tonight. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church. If you've been with us for any duration of time, you may know that me and Clint, we just ongoingly and regularly just keep introducing ourselves. I think it's important for people to know each other's names. Names are really important. It's getting a little bit more difficult these days as we're growing a little bit larger, but it's an important desire of mine to know all of your names, certainly with all of our members, but even as uh, just people are attending more regularly and often, uh, it's maybe a little bit awkward sometimes if I ask you, like, for the third time, hey, remind me your name again, but I think a moment of awkwardness is better to just know your name. Uh, think about it, like how you don't really feel like you know someone until you know their name. You may see people on the street regularly or a barista or someone that you regularly have contact with, but you don't really feel like you know them until you know their name, like there's some anonymous extra in a TV show or a movie that you've seen a thousand times, but you don't really remember them or begin to recognize and remember who they were until you like memorize that actor's name. In our culture today, the word or name God gets thrown around a lot, like in all sorts of contexts. Like people talk about God all the time on TV, on the radio, uh, in movies. There are TV shows right now about God. I've never, I've never seen it, but God Friended Me is apparently a, a popular show. Morgan Freeman often plays God. Uh, while there's a growing number of atheistic Americans those who claim to have no religious affiliation, uh, I think the majority of Americans still believe in some sort of God out there. But in our increasingly multicultured or multi-religious society, we're likely using the same word, God, while meaning many different things. So much of our culture today assumes that maybe we Christians say this word, G-O-D, God, in the same way that Muslims use the word Allah, or Hindus might say Vishnu, or any number of their gods. Christians call him God, but we're all talking about the same thing. But as we're going to see tonight, the word God is more like a title, is more like a descriptor, not God's name. Maybe it'd be if like you and I were together at dinner at the table with some guy from Honduras and some older man from Thailand and some gal from Syria, and we're all talking about actor, just actor. And I've got some idea of who I'm talking about. I've got this vision of like Tom Cruise in my head or something while they have their own cultural expectations or an actor of their own culture in their head. But until we can distinguish which actor we're talking about and then know that actor's name, even though we can have friendly conversations about actor, 
and think we're talking about the same person, we never will be. We'll never recognize and then memorably, memorably know actor for who he is. Really getting to know him. Though I'm not sure that I would like to spend a ton of time with Tom Cruise. Like He creeps me out a little bit. But uh, it is in God's kindness, his love for his people, that he reveals his name. He reveals himself to them that he tells them his name, that he tells them about himself so that they might even know themselves more deeply in light of knowing him. So throughout Genesis, the book prior to Exodus, God has slowly been revealing more and more bits of himself to humanity, but Exodus 3 will bring a just a huge progression in what the world knows about God. And I'm excited to understand this better together tonight. So we'll see this chapter unfold to us under two headings, of God's actions, God calls, and then God shows. And then we'll actually let the third part of our sermon tonight be the first point of our sermon next week, as this is just going to flow right into chapter four of God's sins. But for tonight, just God calls and God shows. So these first five verses of Exodus chapter three, if you're, if you're reading Exodus for the very first time, like you've never seen the movie You've never read this book ever. You don't know the story. You would have just read at the end of chapter two how God has heard the groanings of his people in slavery. He actively remembered. He chose to remember the covenant that he had made with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob, meaning like now is the time that he's going to act. He saw their suffering. He knew, and it's game time. So now you turn the chapter over into chapter three and verse one, Moses is out keeping the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like he's out with just the stinky dirty sheep out in the wilderness next to a mountain. Like I thought this was, it was game time. Like what in the world does Moses out with the flocks have to do with Israel's suffering? If he's gonna save them, why not just do it already? It appears that efficiency and merely accomplishing a to-do list isn't one of God's highest priorities. We'll think more about that as we go over the next several weeks. But Moses is out here with his sheep, and he sees this bush burning up on the side of the mountain. Now, I love the Charlton Heston movie, but I think this scene right here like, has done us just a great disservice. Uh, we'll cut them some slack because the movie was made in 1956, and the special effects weren't really that great back then. But in the movie, perhaps you have like the vision of this burning bush as the vision from the movie. And in the movie, do you remember what it looks like? It's like this like strange bush with like this weird aura of light around it. And it's really strange and it doesn't look like fire at all. But seriously, like if you were walking around in the foothills of the Sandias and you looked up and you saw this like singular fire up there on the side of the mountain, that would be really strange you would think, wow, that's really weird. There's a fire up there. Like, I hope it doesn't spread to other trees and bushes. But then, like, you look at it, and it's still burning. Like, think about all of the bushes as you're hiking up around the Sandia foothills, or as, even as you get higher, like the small sagebrush bushes, or even like some of the bigger, wider, rounder junipers. Like, the Midian wilderness is very similar climate to ours. If that thing caught on fire, one of those sagebrushes or one of those junipers, that thing is going to burn up pretty quickly. And Moses sees this thing burning up there, and it's, it's fire. 
but it is still burning, and it is still burning, and he's really, really curious about it. So maybe he's walking around with his sheep for most of the morning, and it's still burning, and that's just strange. So curiosity is the very first thing that draws Moses to God. So he goes up to check it out. But very quickly, Moses gets more than he would have ever dreamed possible from this scenario as he set out with his sheep that morning. When he gets close, God speaks to him saying, Moses, Moses. Now, based on Moses' response of, here I am, and like most of us know this story, like we don't really realize how crazy that would have been, right? The bush that he has been curiously been eyeballing all morning is not only on fire and is not only not burning up, but then it talks to him. Like if you've seen the three amigos and like the singing bush, right? That is a hilarious scene because it is so out of place. Bushes don't sing, bushes don't talk, right? And yet here is this burning bush that is still burning and burning and burning and burning and burning and then is talking. And not only is it talking, but the bush knows your name. That is very strange. But just like Samuel, just like Elijah and Isaiah later who would understand when they hear God's voice calling to them, Moses appears to know that this is the voice of God because he says, here I am, basically like a, yes, I'm listening. And immediately before God tells him about this extraordinary plan of deliverance that God is going to send Moses on, Before Moses can come closer, God, from the bush, says, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, this is another strange scene. Why does he have to take his sandals off? Why is this spot holy? What does holy even mean? What's going on? Some folks throughout the years have just thought that God is inviting Moses into just doing the Middle Eastern custom of taking your shoes off before you enter a house. And there might be some of that going on here, but why is that, think about it, why is that a custom in the first place? Why do you take your shoes off before entering someone's house? Well, especially in older and more rural cultures, and then especially in Moses' context, what is on the bottom of Moses' sandals? Not to be crass, but Moses is a shepherd. He's literally walking around with a whole bunch of sheep all day. He's likely got pretty, a pretty good accumulation of pee and poop on the bottom of his sandals. Now, when we use the word holy or think about holiness, we tend to, thinking, to think just about moral uprightness, maybe even moral like uptightness, like uh, like when we, use, when, we don't, when, we, when we use the word holy, not in a church or religious context, our wider culture uses holy in like a cynical uh, kind of way. Like she used to be so cool, but now she's just holier than thou or like a holy roller or something, right? I used to like hanging out with, the, hanging out with this person, but now I don't because she's so holy, right? And while moral purity and uprightness is certainly an aspect of holiness. It's not the entire picture of holiness as presented to us in unfolding ways over the course of the Bible. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, who many of you have been helped by, has also been really helpful for me in understanding this concept of holiness. And as he describes it, holiness is like the sun, the S-U-N sun. 
The sun is the huge center of our solar system. It is totally unlike anything that we can imagine on earth. And all life not only revolves around it, but receives its life from the sun, receives warmth, receives life. But it is more like just about heat. There is something pure about the sun, we might say. There's like a moral purity of the sun. It burns hot and purely that enables it to give heat and warmth to those who receive this heat and warmth. But the sun is also dangerous. If you get too close to it, if you approach it without being prepared for its purity, without being prepared for its heat, it's a dangerous place to be. And so here's this bush, this little hot spot of God's holiness on earth. And Moses, perhaps carelessly, perhaps not, he's walking in with a bunch of gross death on the bottom of his shoes. He's bringing death into the presence of light, of heat, of purity. And this place, this hot spot has been set apart for a specific purpose. This hot spot here is the purpose, it's been set aside for God to dwell on earth, at least for this moment. So just like we might say that the kitchen counter in your kitchen might be a holy place and that it is set apart for something. It is, has a specific purpose of meal preparation. So you don't like go play outside in the backyard with your shoes on and then you come, out, come inside and then jump up on the counter with your dirty shoes. That is the place for meal prep. You don't play around outside and get into your bed with your shoes on. You like your bed to be clean. You don't want to feel like dirt and sand in there when you get into bed. Those areas are set apart and meant for a purpose. And so this area around the bush, this place of God, is meant for a purpose and it is not to be entered into lightly. God is the one who makes demands. God is the one who allows Moses to come near without getting consumed by the pure heat of the sun. But that's something that we actually can't meet. It is God who actually invites Moses into his presence. He invites him in closer. He doesn't despise Moses for being in a like, state of moral unholiness. He doesn't begrudge that Moses wants to come near. It was God who instigated the whole thing in the first place. It was God who provoked Moses' curiosity to get him up on the side of the mountain. It is God who... Uh, knows Moses by name and calls him by name and invites him in. It is he who wants to purify Moses and bring him closer. And this episode right here is like a prequel for the whole story of Israel that's to follow. The nation of Israel is called to this very same mountain later on. The, the Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, they're used interchangeably. And there, God will call to them by fire. He will also give them a warning to not come too close until he gives them commands for what it means to live with him, for them to be in his presence. God wants to dwell with them. This hot spot of his presence will ultimately move from this mountain with them by fire in their midst, in this mobile tent. So we might sum up the story of the Old Testament. We might sum up the whole story of the Bible. It is a story of how can the sun how can an altogether pure and altogether 
life-giving, altogether different, and even an altogether terrifying, consuming heat, consuming being, live with people without killing them? How can he live with this unholy people? That, That unholiness includes moral impurity. We'll see that for sure throughout the rest of this book. There's loads of moral impurity that separates Israel from God's presence. But it also just includes lives that are filled up with and are affected by sickness and by weakness and by death. How can God live with his people without killing them, without consuming them? Not because he's bad, but because he is so life-givingly good. And then how can the holiness of God shape and transform this people so that they might be this middle ground of heaven and earth, this middle ground of God's presence here on earth and them pointing to a world of this God, of sin and death filled up, filling this people, but also simultaneously of purity and of life so that the world might see and know God. So much, much more on holiness as we keep moving through Exodus, certainly as we as we read about and understand the law, but this right here is the very first time that the word holy is used in the Bible. It's a theme that is going to continue to be further unveiled and further developed. So after we see that God calls, God has called Moses to himself and into his presence, into holiness, now secondly, God shows. And here's what I mean by that. Over the next 11 or so verses, God is going to show Moses who he is and reveal the nature of his character. Undoubtedly, Moses had probably learned of this desert God who made promises to Abraham long ago. Maybe as Moses was approaching the burning bush and heard his name coming from it, he immediately knew that this was Abraham's God. Maybe not, though. Maybe he thought or understood that this was some deity, but didn't really know which one it was. God who mostly up until this point has been identified in our English Bibles as capital G, lowercase o, lowercase d. This is the English indicator of the Hebrew word Elohim. Whenever you see capital G, O, D, this is the Hebrew word Elohim, which is basically like a title for God. An Elohim is a divine being, one who has power and might. And in this sense, this Elohim of the Bible is the one of Genesis 1 who created the heavens and the earth. But which G-O-D, which Elohim are we talking about here? Moses is outside of Egypt, so Moses might be thinking, all right, I'm outside of the territory of like some Egyptian Elohim, like Ra or Osiris or something, but I'm getting close to Canaan. So maybe this is like the Canaanite Canaanite god Molech, who is like inviting me into his presence or something. But then God speaks from the bush, and in verse 6 says, I am the God of your father. I am the Elohim of Abraham the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob. Now Moses must be just overwhelmed by a wave of emotion. The God that he had heard stories about since his childhood as he was living with uh, his birth mother, being nursed by her, all of these stories are actually true. God isn't just some evolved or imagined archetype or fable, or parable to give us meaning in life, but he is an actual deity. He is the actual deity who created the skies, who created the earth. The God who spoke and made covenant with Noah, the God who spoke and made covenant with Abraham, who made promises to Abraham of giving him a people and a land for them to live in and to bless them. 
But this God had been silent for so long, maybe Moses had legitimately wondered whether it had all just been a fable, whether it had all just been a tall tale. Like, it had been 500 years since God had spoken to Abraham. 500 years is a long time. Like, 500 years ago, I looked up what was happening in North America, in the New World, in 1520. And like Cortez and the conquistadors were just now approaching Tenochtitlan, Mexico City. That is a long time ago. Much has happened since then. But can you imagine? Now God has been silent to this family of people for that long. Five centuries. But now he's speaking again. And all of this is just too much for Moses. He hides his face. He's afraid. Like this morning, he set out just like every other morning with his sheep. And now he's in the presence of a deity, and not just any deity, but the deity who has made promises to his people. But this God is just getting going and revealing himself. He says that he has heard the cries of suffering from the people of Israel, and he has come down to deliver them up. He's going to take them to the land that he has promised Moses' fathers. But to this... Moses then responds with the first of five questions. Some of them questions, maybe some, out, some flat out like rejections of what God is telling Moses that he's going to do. The first two that we're going to see tonight may be innocent enough. We maybe can give Moses the benefit of the doubt that he's just asking like follow-up questions of God. Next week won't be so kind. But in verse 11, Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Like maybe 40 years ago. That would have been a good time for you to give me this job. Maybe when I was younger. Maybe when I was a prince in Egypt, someone might listen to me. But who am I? Like, I mean, I understand that you're giving me this job, but I'm an old man. I'm like, I'm just an old shepherd. Why in the world would Pharaoh just let Israel go? But God doesn't say, yeah, yeah, trust me. I was scanning the globe. I was scanning the world, and I have been looking for the most impressive resume. I've been really impressed by your work, O Moses. You're winsome and persuasive. You've been to seminary. You've read all of the best apologetic books out there. Any question that Pharaoh might have, you'll have a very eager response to him. I especially admire how, how many of your mean, atheistic professors have become Christians through your evangelism. Well done. Good job. Uh, So you, Moses, I'm choosing you and sending you to do this job. This is not at all what he says. Moses says, who am I? And God basically says, you're nobody. You've done nothing. There's nothing that you have, but I am with you. I am going with you. So it really doesn't matter who I am sending to do this job because I am the one going to do it. Here's all you need to know. Here's the sign that you need to know and believe in in faith, Moses, that all of Israel will one day be here at this mountain serving me. No longer serving Pharaoh, but serving me. So like, look, at, turn around, like look out from the mountaintop over this land. And now all you see is bushes and a few hundred sheep or something. But in a short time, as far as you can see, will be the people of Israel, more than you could even count. Trust me, this is going to happen, and I am going to do it. So maybe Moses is cool with that. Maybe, maybe not. We don't really know his heart here, but 
Then he goes on in verse 13. He says, but if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? But God, Elohim, is about to reveal more about himself. He's about to reveal a name which actually shows his character. God, Elohim, says in verse 14, I am who I am. Or perhaps you might have a translation that shows some of the difficulty of the Hebrew that God says here, of perhaps your translation might say, say, uh, I will be what I will be. Maybe you've heard Exodus 3 before. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you haven't. Maybe this is the very first time you have had any interaction with Exodus 3. But my guess is it's our temptation to just kind of blow by this. Like God says, I am what I am. I am who I am. And you're like, "Mm." Mm mm-hmm. That is super deep. Like, it is what it is. I think, therefore, I am. I don't know what that means. Next. But God is actually revealing something deeply personal about himself. There is a present and future reality of the Hebrew grammar here so that one scholar says that you could almost interpret what God says here as I am and will continue to be what I am and will forever be. Meaning, who is it that I should say is sending me to deliver the people of Israel? God is saying, I am the purest and truest embodiment of any character trait that I ever show or display. Like if we see that God says that he is holy or God shows that he is holy, he is holiness and will always be holiness. In Exodus 34, Moses says that God is merciful and kind. It's not that sometimes God chooses to act in mercy or in kindness. It is that God is mercy. God is kindness. Do you want to know what those character traits actually are? Look to God. They are God. God is love. God is justice. We humans, we're we're not that way, right? We are sometimes kind. We are sometimes selfless. But when your kids or your roommates or are they're kind of frustrating, Kindness doesn't just exude out of you because that is who you are. You are kindness. No, you respond in unkindness. When some folks require time and attention that you just would rather not give, it's sometimes difficult. Selflessness doesn't just come out of you because you are selflessness. But not God, not this Elohim. He says, I am and will continue to be what I am and will forever be. And then God tells Moses his name. Second half of verse 14, he says, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The most traditional Hebrew pronunciation of this word, these two words, this this one Hebrew word is Yahweh. And yes, it points to his personal pre-existence that he always exists. He always has and always will. But more than that, in light of the covenant, that God has made with Abraham, he is saying, tell him this, I am and will continue to be what I am and will forever be. The promises to Abraham are still good and they will forever be. I will be their their redeemer. 
And that's why when you see this word, Yahweh, we can know that it is Yahweh when most of our English translations say the Lord with all capitals. You see that in your English Bible, L, capital L-O-R-D. This is the English translators telling you that God is using his covenant name of Yahweh. God is God, G-O-D, is just Elohim, like the title of the, the powerful deity. Yahweh is the God who saves out of the faithfulness to his promises. So in verse 15, God says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, I am the God, the Elohim, Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, has sent me to you. He has slowly been revealing himself to humanity and in a big, big way now here to Moses on the mountain, he is revealing more and he will continue to reveal more and more and more of himself throughout Israel's stories. He'll, story. He'll continue to reveal more names that just show more about the deepness of his character throughout the Old Testament. But then he will finally and fully reveal himself in the person of Jesus when another shepherd, there's another shepherd who's walking in and amongst his people, amongst their death, amongst their decay and their dirtiness. And he's telling them that it is God who has sent him. And he's showing them miraculous signs that he might lead them out of their bondage. And then Jesus begins making all kinds of I am statements. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But perhaps the most audacious claim that Jesus ever makes comes in John 8, when Jesus tells some of the Jewish religious leaders that many, many thousands of years earlier, Abraham rejoiced. Abraham, past tense, rejoiced to see the present day of Jesus. And they're like, what? Like, you're not even 50 years old. What are you even trying to say? To which Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He is saying, before Abraham existed, I pre-existed him. Yes, that's very true and part of what he's saying. But he's also saying, Yahweh. Before Abraham existed, I am the covenant God of Abraham. I am the very embodiment of grace, of love, of kindness, of justice, of mercy. You'll want to know what all of those things are? Look at me. I am Abraham's God. Which, understandably, they, not understanding what he is kind of claiming and who he is claiming to be, think of this as blasphemous. And in John 8, at the end of that chapter, they want to kill him. Make no bones about who Jesus thought he was and claimed him he was. But this is, all of this is why we profess and remind ourselves of the things that we profess like from the Nicene Creed. And I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God. Jesus is God of God. He is light of light. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Because here's another interesting bit from Exodus 3. In verse 2, we read that the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, is the one who first appears to Moses. But then, for the rest of the chapter, it's Elohim, or it is Yahweh, 
who is doing the speaking. There's like multiple characters at the bush. There's been debate for thousands of years over who this angel of the Lord is. He appears all over the Old Testament, but it seems as though that he is different. The angel of the Lord is different from other angelic beings who simply act as messengers for God. This angel of the Lord appears to speak for God and then doesn't correct people when they use very reverential, worshipful language. They fall at his feet and worship them worship him. He doesn't correct them when that happens. Now, it requires some nuance, but I think the angel of the Lord here is an appearance of God who shows himself as man, meaning I think this angel is the pre-embodied appearance of the God-man Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God who draws, who welcomes unholy people into the holy presence of God, as he does here with Moses. He draws them, he welcomes them, not based on their resume, not on the things that they've done or the bad things that they've avoided. This scene is a small and incomplete foretaste of when Jesus is both God and then, ultimately, in his birth and in his incarnation, he is fully man to live for us and to die for us, to welcome us fully into the presence of God as our advocate, as our friend, so that we can know God, not just as Elohim, not as just some powerful deity, not just as Yahweh even, the one who has made covenant promises and who has kept them, but this angel of the Lord, this Jesus, this God-man invites us into God's presence that we might know him finally as Father. The gospel, it's just quite a story. It's quite a ride that we can hitch ourselves to and then just hold on. Hold on for dear life with just immense opportunity for transformation and for joy. Maybe you've been drawn to him out of curiosity. Maybe you've been drawn to him over time, over the past many months, perhaps even years, perhaps drawn to him out of curiosity for the first time tonight. Maybe there's something strangely unique about what you think might be real about God. Maybe you've been reading through the Bible. Maybe you've been thinking through the nature of Jesus' resurrection and what that might mean. Maybe you've been drawn to his people. Maybe you've been drawn by their kindness and their love for you. Maybe you've felt a sense of guilt for sin, for the way that you've lived your life and that you're just hoping that this God might be able to do something about that. Well, perhaps for the first time tonight, you might move from simple and mere curiosity into worship, into the very presence of God, who desires to know you and to be in covenant with you. And in the same way that God called Moses from the bush by name, moving him from curiosity into a life-altering moment, maybe you would insert your own name, And hear God through Christ saying your name and then saying, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I, I will give you, I will give you rest. Might it even be possible that you think you've believed in God, perhaps for many years, but what you've actually believed in is not the God of the Bible. It's perhaps some culturally mixed up 
concoction of just some deity out there. What you've really believed in is actually kind of a mostly checked out and distant force somewhere out in the future that you hope will be able to do something for you after you die and perhaps give you some bit of meaning in the present. If that's the case, then yeah, that God is pretty much the same God. A little bit different, but mostly the same God as Allah or Vishnu or the God of Mormonism or native spiritualism. There's lots of different things about him that are the same in different religions that we can all know and grasp for. Which is why then it sounds super close-minded and really arrogant for someone to say that my understanding of that God is better and different than your understanding. And it is, exclusive, it is the exclusive way to know that God and yours is wrong. But if God has revealed himself, if he has spoken, if he has provided a way to not only dwell with humans without consuming them, but he desires to live with them and transform them for eternity, and if he says that all of those other small g gods out there are absolutely not him, and they are not the way to life, then maybe tonight is the night that you just push all your chips in on Jesus. Say, I do see the difference. I do hear and accept the exclusive truth claims that you are making, that you are the way, the truth, the life to know God. Don't wait any longer. We'd love to talk with you about what that might mean after the service, pray with you, think through these things over coffee, many coffees, uh, over the next several months with you if you'd like. If you're already a Christian, keep following him. Keep swimming. Dive down into the deep end of understanding who God is. God is not begrudgingly frustrated with you that he called you by accident a couple years ago and you keep showing yourself to be just a messed up failure. This is not the God who has called you. He is not interested in your resume. He wants to know, he wants you to know that he is with you. It is by him that he will save you. It is by him that he will make you holy if you latch on to his promises by faith. We sang earlier, I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. It's he who must hold me fast. He is and will continue to be what he is and will forever be for me for you. So keep swimming more deeply. Read Exodus 3. Read the rest of the book of Exodus just a whole lot of times over the next several months. On your way out of here, grab a, like, look over this bookshelf right around the corner. Find a book that might be interesting, that might help you understand God, understand the Bible in a new or deeper way than you currently understand. And then just come back next week and the week after that, and keep meeting in your GCs together and encouraging one another. Next week, we'll think through how God uses and sends ordinary and weak people to accomplish extraordinary and powerful results. And also a really confusing passage about circumcision to end that chapter. So we'll see you next week, all right? Let's pray.
Oh God, we pray to you because we know you. And we know you because you have made yourself known to us. You didn't have to. You didn't have to make a way to redeem and transform a people. But we are floored and thankful that you did. Lord Jesus, our shepherd and our king, why you lived for us, we we can't imagine. Why you died for us, why you died for me, I have no explanation. Why you have raised us to new life with us, we, we cannot fathom what a God you are, and we want to know you more. Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who is love, who is justice, who is mercy and kindness and holiness. Form us more and more into people who are like him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.